Welcome to the Ethical Marketing Podcast. And today we've got a really good podcast, as always, of course. And we've got an interview with Dr. Rebecca Swift from Getty, which is really interesting. And before that, Shan, Andrew and I are going to talk about the Swedish brand Oatly. Now, they were formed in 1994 and they were set themselves out really early as a disruptive challenger brand. And they came out kind of fighting and, and pushing for the idea of veganism and plant-based lifestyle. And at first, it took them a bit of a while to get recognized. But in about 2012, they took on a new CEO and a new creative director, Tony Peterson and John Schoolcraft. And when they came on, they kind of changed the brand voice a bit and they, they moved it and it became a brand that felt like they were designed to shop and they really kicked off the success from there. In 2016, they launched in the US and at first they kind of avoided the, the regular bit of going through supermarkets and they focused on coffee shops and they, they created a kind of culture where the baristas and the people who worked there were really their champions and their ambassadors. And at one point they were so popular in 2018, I think it was, that there was such a shortage of them that a 12 pack of, of Oatly Barista blend oat milk was being sold on Amazon for over $220. So everything was going really well for them and they were growing in what was effectively quite a young market. There wasn't a lot of equivalent brands out there. And they were praised at the time for their really interesting and bold marketing campaigns. So in 2020, they sold a 10% stake, which was worth at the time $200 million to a group of high profile investors. And one of those investors was a private equity firm, Blackstone. And they were using this to, to help fund their global expansion. The public perception of Blackstone is generally viewed by people who are interested in that ethical sphere uh, as quite negative. There have been allegations made through the years. There have been people who have just been really unhappy with how they were they, they managed themselves. They were one of Trump's backers, so there was political pressure as well. There were people who found that this didn't match with the claims that Oatly were making about their own ethical viewpoint and standpoint. And this was kind of the start of a bit of a, a change in how they were viewed within a community. And we thought this would be an interesting way to just talk about that kind of journey that they took and the, the curve that happened when they grew from a smaller business into a much bigger business and how that impacted either on their own ethics or more importantly, arguably, how their ethics were seen from outside. And we thought that this might be really useful for people to have this conversation because it's not the normal kind of stuff we've talked about. There's not a crisis as such. The stuff that Oatly did. They, they have weathered those storms. They've got through it. But we wanted to have a bit of a conversation about that journey and about what it meant for them and what it could mean for, for other businesses. I think what people loved about Oatly was that like anti-establishment, scrappy startup vibe. And then they really tied that in with their marketing strategy which is really focused on out of home marketing so billboards basically and then obviously as their budget has grown television they had a super bowl ad they've really kept that vibe of we're self-depreciating we're unapologetic we're scrappy and people have really leaned into that and love that but that's now becoming the problem for them because They've taken investment. They've financially grown massively. The public perception is that they sold out effectively because people have viewed that investment as coming from a source that doesn't match their values of being the good guys that are 
trying to change the industry. And then at that point, they've started to become the big corporate machine that they were actually set out to disrupt in the first place. And I think what's happening is they faced a couple of backlashes on their adverts for a few different reasons, you know, one being greenwashing and really coming under fire being one of the first big brands to come under fire when the advertising standards introduced the green claims code and one of their ads got banned for misleading green claims and they had an advert where a teenager was doing an intervention with their dad about drinking dairy and that got a big public backlash because people were saying it was kind of watering down and making light of addiction and kind of the process of having a family member who's got addiction And so they've had a few incidences along the way that are really showing a shift in public perception around their culture and and who they are as a company. They're not the little startup anymore that's trying to shake up the establishment. They are the establishment. So where I'm interested in this from a branding perspective is, are they bringing their audiences along that journey or are they starting to lose people? And when they took that investment, it felt like they had maybe made the decision to almost cut that real cult-like following of really loyal, really, really ethical um, kind of core audience in order to reach a more mainstream audience. But where I don't feel like they've translated it is actually thinking, does our brand voice, does our style still work for the size of company we are? The problem with investment and growth at any scale is eventually it becomes a double-edged sword. You can't keep everybody happy simultaneously. But I would argue that the brand positioning they had before investment was perfect to be rolled out en masse with lots of advertising spend to people that didn't know the difference between good oats and bad oats. So the average consumer doesn't know the difference. Let's be honest here. The behavioural gap between intent and actual behaviour is significant in this area, on top of which actually a funky modern young brand will attract the zennials and the millennials that are those key audiences that have the money. I mean, you're literally talking realistically 28 to maybe 36, 38. So you're looking at 10 years, basically. You're not looking at a big chunk that will be attracted to that branding style. However, you get feedback off that in your advertising and you get probably a five-point spread to either side. So it's a strong position for it, but... You've got to take the messaging. You can't just take the brand you have established. You've got to take the messaging with it. And that would be my thing. I think Sean's absolutely right that when it comes down to it, they dumped off the people that made that brand work. If they'd done a large-scale barista investment in local coffee shops, worked with them, maybe provided a little bit of free milk. I mean, let's be honest, I can't imagine it costs very much to produce oat milk. So at which point you could afford to maybe help out small businesses, make it a community-driven thing, introduce that community element and scale it out nation by nation over a period of time that would allow you to use the sort of infrastructure that we see being used by innocent smoothies. 
that logistical chain becomes incredibly important to being able to roll out a brand at that scale multinationally. But at the same time, if you don't have the communications to match over the top with, say, again, Innocent Smoothies and the Little Hats campaign. It's the Age UK campaign, isn't it? The Age UK campaign. That is a very nice tie-in because it makes them look very community-focused and very fun when actually they are a large company. Oatly's failure to embed themselves at community level and to embed their values at community level in countries that they're rolling out to seems to have really harmed them. I think that the movement between a small, very distinct sort of fan base and, as you say, almost a culty kind of viewpoint to move on to a much bigger one is one where you do have to change your branding. I think you're absolutely right, Sean. I think this the problem is not really what they did. It's, it's what businesses do. They have to sometimes get into bed with people they don't like. I think it is important when you move from being a small company, you do have to work out where your branding will change because I think the ethical viewpoint that they sold themselves on very early on is arguably not compatible with then taking investment from a a bigger company that at least publicly is perceived as being a negative. I think you have to look at what you're like as a small company who is then looking to grow and to increase. And I think that we will then have to pay attention to who invests in you, whether they reach the ethical standards that you have set yourself all the way through this process. And if they don't, then that again, that's a decision that the company has to take. But then you then have to look at how you market yourself and whether you can continue to market yourself in the same way. It's difficult to state that you are an ethical company when the perception is that you've got into bed with a company who is not ethical. I think that's where they fell down. So when they when the news about that investment broke, there was a really big backlash from the ethical community. And where they were criticised was that they have positioned themselves as the good guys I think they've literally used that phrase in their marketing before and they've really kind of talked about their ethics as a company they obviously backed their decision and they issued a statement standing by their decision to take investment and they were saying that this is part of how you change the system you have to get into the system in order to change it and you know these investors are going to see the profit in sustainability and we're talking their language and In that statement, they said about how their mission had always been to really shake up the food system and move that in a more sustainable direction. So at that point, they had to start niching down on what they meant by ethical and sustainable because they've made a decision that publicly has not been perceived to be an ethical one. Obviously, when we're dealing with ethics, there is dilemmas. And sometimes, unfortunately, you do have to prioritise some areas over others because that's the system that we're in so their statement was very unapologetic and was very it did explain you know things aren't black and white and we have to make those decisions and this is the decision we've made and this is why we stand by it and that's kind of the approach they've always taken they did the same with the help dad backlash um, and said you know we didn't intend it to be taken like that and you know if that is how it's taken then 
that's one way of looking at it. But actually, our way of looking at it is that young people usually do drive change in families, and they are the ones that are wanting to go vegan and make that shift. So we really wanted to lean into that. And I know the creative director has said in interviews that their DNA as a brand is to be fearless and to be disruptive. And the way he puts it is not overthink things that, you know, they go in and they do it and they're trying to be provocative. And they often talk about, you know, hiring lots of lawyers. And it was reported that at one point their measure of success was how many times they were getting sued for what they were putting out there. So they obviously have gone out there with this provocative mindset and really leaned into that. But my question looking at this is how long does that last for them? Is that an endless road? Or as they become more and more institutional, more and more corporate, is that road going to run out for them? And does it feel like they're preparing for that? Because when you look at some of the things that are happening, possibly not. It may have made complete sense from a business perspective if you're trying to push out to a much larger base. I can see why you might want to move away from a quite a small but loyal customer base into a much larger one, especially if you genuinely believe that what you're doing is is for the best and that you might, as you say, have to compromise your morals in order to do that. But I do think there's a question about continuing to sell yourself as that. You almost could have made a campaign of, look, this is what we're willing to sacrifice in order to try and get to the bigger audience. That's kind of how I felt like I would have done it if I was in charge of a campaign like that. It would have been acknowledging that you've done something that people aren't going to agree with, but you've done it for the right reasons, rather than sort of be completely unapologetic, be apologetic, but also explain it and and sort of justify it in some way, shape or form. Although I understand it's difficult to do that without massively insulting the people that have just given you $200 million. But I think this comes back to what we were talking about with Spotify. And we said that the the fundamental problem with that whole crisis was that they were one (laughs) (laughs) they weren't breaking down their audiences and they weren't tailoring the messages to the different audiences and i actually think you're right Stuart. oatly could have been more provocative and more fearless and more in line with all of their brand and marketing values if they'd have broken down those audiences and use it, used more targeted messaging to talk to them, part of the problem here is that their main strategy is out of home. So it's billboards. And obviously you can't target the messaging on a billboard. It has to be the same messaging for everybody that sees it. I think if I may here, I'd be, I would agree with everything you both said, apart from one thing. I think when it comes to investment it's vox populi vox non day the voice of the people is not the voice of god there is an audience that you have to accept you're going to burn if you're going to grow because you cannot please anybody and the fact is there are no purely ethical investment firms um, that i am aware of and i've worked in that space for quite a long time there's nobody that I could say could be guaranteed. Even the ethical standard stuff now, it's questionable as to whether or not that will include arms dealers in the near future. Now, there are some people that would consider that to be completely unethical. But there are also some people in certain parts of the world right now that would disagree with that. Ethics is so subjective outside of a legal framework that I think it was nearly impossible for Oatly to carry that audience with them However, I think if they'd have done more community outreach and accepted that they were going to burn that, a proportion of their audience, because the other thing here, the reason 
it's a Latin quote and the voice of the people is not the voice of God because the Twitterati exists. I wonder how many of their loyal fan base stopped drinking them. I wonder what percentage cared enough that they'd taken money. But on the flip side of that, I'm very aware that if you do burn that audience, you better build up the rest of them. And that is where I completely agree with you, Sean, that if they had concentrated on laying out the rest of their audience spectrum well, and also being aware of their moral compass on some of the issues I'm sure we'll get onto in a bit, they could have held, they could have maintained not the total moral high ground, but at least enough to carry forward in a solid way. I think that's the really valuable lesson when you look at the evolution of this brand and this series of events and how they've reacted, is that if you are strategic about your risks and you really embed your communications in the overall business strategy, you can foresee that you're going to be going for investment. You can see this problem coming. You can see that that percentage of your audience are going to react badly. And you can not just mitigate it in terms of preparing a CEO statement that goes up on the website and briefing the comms team on how to respond to the tweets, which obviously Oatly did, but actually thinking about how you diversify your audiences. And that is the bit that takes a long period of time because obviously gaining ground with new audiences, building rapport, building trust, becoming a household name, doing all of that stuff takes a long time as evidenced by the fact that actually Oatly have been around since 1994. And up until the point where they took that investment, they were seen as a startup and a relatively new brand. And obviously they really leaned into that, but that is just evidence of how long it takes to build that ground with those audiences. But if you are strategic, you can see that coming and you can embed that in your strategy and you will get to the point where actually it doesn't matter that you've moved away from a percentage of your audience because you've gained ground elsewhere. But if you don't do that, then that's when this kind of thing can become really damaging. It is interesting that after this, though, they did lose market share, but I'm not 100% convinced if they lost market share because they'd come in as a new boys in a new market and nobody else had learned how to milk a note by this point. So it was, they were completely new and they came in and over, say, that five or six year period that they were building themselves in the States, there was a lot of new companies who came in to do it. So I'd be interested to know whether they really lost sales whilst losing market share. I would wouldn't be surprised if they were actually selling more than ever before, but had lost that market share because there were a lot more smaller companies on the market. But it is that interesting thing that if you are going to be changing and growing, you are going to hit this audience. And this audience, by the sheer nature of the size of it, won't always be tied into your ethical purpose. And a lot of these people don't care about the ethics. They care or they care broadly about the ethics. They are people who want to think that they're doing what's right for the environment, but actually don't want to put a huge amount of effort into it. Yeah, and the plant-based space is a really good example of taking the same product and tweaking the message to apply to different audiences because you've got people that are vegan because of the um, environment. You've got people that are vegan because of animals. You've got people who are just becoming more plant-based and haven't gone fully vegan, possibly for health reasons. You've got so many different motivations that actually you really need to understand that 
in order to project the right message. Because if you come at the health motivated audience with an animal related message, it's not going to resonate and you're not going to sell. I think the other thing I'd mention, and mainly it's just so I can predict the future for a moment. So I was in a Morrison's the other day. Side note, Morrison's, I'm hoping we won't be talking about you in six months time, um, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, But actually, one of the things I noticed was barista style oat milk made for Morrisons. So I'm wondering if one of the reasons is that, although in, I know in most markets, first first mover advantage plays in, but in something like oat milk, I can't imagine that first mover advantage lasts very long at a global scale. So is there a real differentiation between Morrison's oat milk and Oatly? They both say barista special or something equivalent on them. All that's different is the price points. And at which point, when you go to a supermarket, do you buy the milk that's in front of you or do you go, oh, that one's more expensive. I'll have that one for exactly the same thing. I think it probably depends on your audience. And maybe that's why having that kind of young millennial audience might have paid a little bit over over the top for the brand that they, they wanted. But it is noticeable that since more oat milks came on the market the price of Oatly has had to drop it's no longer seen as quite the luxury and I'm guessing that's exactly for exactly the reasons you said that people now don't need to specifically go to Oatly to get their oat fix if such a thing exists any company moving forward does need to look at this bigger plan like you say I think they need to be planning quite early on how they're going to tackle this kind of change in their position because that's what it is it's fundamentally a change in the position of the company so you don't have to be a solid growth company like Oatly to be aware that being conscious of your audiences, understanding which audiences are important to you and which ones are so core to your business you can't move, that you have to keep certain things within your brand identity, especially if you want to keep that sort of brand. That brand, just because a brand looks a certain way and you want to keep it, the moment you expand or grow or change, because you have to to survive as a business, especially post-COVID and with what we're experiencing in terms of standard of living. When you take all of that into account, businesses and brands are having to evolve more now than they ever have. I mean, you cannot put up retail prices by 10 15%. Even if you try to match retail prices, then your production prices are rising too. So you end up in what's called an inflationary spiral. That has to cease somewhere, and it ceases when you run out of capital to turn it over month on month with all the circumstances that are going on businesses have to evolve which means you have to look at your audiences decide who you can keep and who you can't and then evolve your communications to hold as much of that audience in a different environment so shan as a marketer do you feel because just speaking about this it comes to my mind that a lot of their problem was the a lack of flexibility on how they chose to market themselves by pushing out of home primarily, it limited what they could do when things did change for them. I remember from my time in corporate that too often these decisions would have been made without somebody from marketing and communications at the table and would then have been brought to that team as this is what we're doing, make it work. 
Whereas actually this is a really good example of if you just involve communications from the beginning and go with an audience focused approach, you can get those insights that Andrew was talking about into which audiences can we keep? How do we bring them on the journey? How do we change our messaging? And then you're absolutely right, Stuart, you know, really committing to one method of marketing because that's what we've always done and it's worked maybe isn't the right way to get this message out as we evolve. But too often brands lead with either the message first or even the platform and the medium first based on what's worked for them in the past and don't think about audience first. And I think that's fundamentally where so many businesses get this kind of growth curve and change curve wrong. So what kind of advice then could we give to the companies that might be listening to this who are ethical but are looking to to grow? I mean, is it a matter of people have to compromise or that when or is it more that when you do compromise because the nature of business is that it's a compromise, it's how you deal with that. And which compromises? That would be my thing. Which compromises you choose, how you deal with it. And knowing your target audiences. I mean, Sean's absolutely right. If you do not know who you are selling to, you should not be running a business. It's that simple. And if you do know who you are selling to, and you are not selling to those people and specifically targeting them, I will never buy you a pint ever. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Sean. And I think that will hopefully show people that as you grow as a business, it's really important to look at how your marketing can change. And that might include the audience that you go out to and your placement within the marketplace. Today, we are joined by Dr. Rebecca Swift, who is the Global Head of Creative Insights at Getty Images and iStock. We're very, very excited to have you, Rebecca. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. And one of your campaigns was actually shouted out as one of our favourite campaigns of the year in one of the previous episodes when we did a bit of a roundup in terms of the representation that you're doing. So it would be fantastic if you could just get us started by telling us a little bit about what your job is and what your background is and what kind of got you to this stage today. Sure. Hello, hello. I've been in this industry on and off for 25 years and I started in a very small stock agency which eventually became Getty Images. So I've been around the business since it started in the mid-90s and my role within Getty Images is is running the Creative Insights team and, and we're a global team and our role is to understand how images, be that stills or video or illustration are being consumed not only by uh, corporates and, and our customers but also their customers the consumers us basically and and looking at you know the kind of patterns and trends that are appearing not only in the way that people are talking about images the words that they use when they're searching for images online and the type of content that they're eventually downloading and we combine that with consumer surveys we're always looking at you know how uh, attitudes towards representation to realness to authenticity as well as other subjects like you know how we feel about technology sustainability and taking care of ourselves you know both 
physically and mentally. And all of that information is kind of part of the ecosystem of Getty Images. It ends up becoming content plans. It becomes creative briefs for our contributors. We work with you know well over 300,000 contributors of all, all, all shapes and sizes and, and in terms of professional to, to amateur. And um, you know we're helping pushing them in the right direction. Now, that was kind of traditionally how my team worked. We worked specifically with the contributors. We helped the company create new, better, more forward-thinking content. But what has happened in recent years is that as, as we have kind of expanded our research, because, you know, we, any company you can possibly imagine we work with, and, and you know, and we work across media, we work, you know, we, we work with, you know, sports and news organizations. And, and so we have this amazing worldview, actually, of how content is being consumed. And what we didn't do in the early days of the business was talk very much about what we had kind of the privileged knowledge of. And in more recent years, we've actually been a bit more bold, I suppose, about that. I've been kind of taking the lead on that. I think I've just been around a long time and are now thinking, you know, we, we need to need to, to change things. And that therefore has created the, the space, I suppose, for us as a business to work with brands to help them improve their visual branding, to improve their visual communication, to get better at representation, to be more ethical in the way that they're representing certain identity groups. And, and then, you know, when we've realized that we're missing something, Thing, you know, be it a, a certain community or a certain way of shooting, then we'll actually go out and actively seek that out. And we build guidelines and we create content and we run workshops and, and so on and so forth. And, and it's, it's interesting how the company has gone from being just a stock supplier, which is kind of abbreviated way of saying rubbish imagery a lot of the time. It's like, oh, that's stocky or that looks that looks like it's stock imagery to actually being right at the forefront of creating content and kind of showing the way for the companies that we work with. And so, you know, we get brought in to talk to the industry about, you know, what we're finding and what we're seeing in terms of, you know, how agencies and, and big corporates are actually consuming content. And, you know, it's, it's quite shocking, I think, for some in terms of what we, what we, what we see. But the other thing is, and, you know, it, it's, some of these conversations have been going on for generations you know i've done a lot of academic work and the and study of women in advertising and the critique of women in advertising dates back to you know the the 70s was when that real kind of critical school of thought was developed and and actually the conversation hasn't really moved on or rather the conversation hasn't had an impact until kind of you know me too and you know that you know 2018 and you know and, and that's why this momentum has been built around representing real women which is you know i say that i'm, I'm doing i'm doing finger finger quotes and also bringing more women into the business because we know that one of the biggest issues until this point has been that it's mainly been male photographers that have been shooting that content. And while that's, you know, while that that in, in many instances, it's not a bad thing, it's one perspective. And so, you know, we're very big on uh, it, it broadening the perspective of women in, in the work we do. It was the uh, hashtag show us campaign and project that we celebrated as one of our examples of ethical marketing that we loved from last year because you published the kind of impact report which obviously does look at that representation and making sure that the people being represented are also the decision makers in the room and in this case the photographers creating the creative work can you tell us a little bit about the impact of that so far and kind of where that initiative evolved from 
We've been doing some work around the depiction of women. We were approached by the Lean In organization, which was which which is Cheryl Sandberg's organization in 2014 to improve the, the depiction of women in business. And that's very, you know, the, the Lean In organization is, is very focused on women leaning into each other and, and pushing women up into the, you know, on, onto the executive boards, etc. And that was incredibly successful for us as a business. I think it changed hearts and minds in terms of, you know, how they felt about us as a company. And so, and, and so internally, we were, you know, changing the way we we were working, and we were kind of getting to a place where we were already thinking about, you know, moving moving into this other kind of more authentic space. And coincidentally, Dove approached us in 2018 to work on this this project. Uh, show us it was called Project Junior at the time to bring more female identifying contributors into the stock industry to change the perception of what reality and and authenticity is in stock imagery. And so we kind of you, you know we we mapped out a plan whereby we took women from 39 different countries and we trained them up to be. Stock shooters we did you know eight education events uh, we had some fly into London in the glorious days where you could actually still fly and then we did online training as well because you know some some of the some of the women were uh, you know it was it was, it was more difficult for them to, to travel and uh, we created this collection and and you know it's really interesting because what is normally seen as the most authentic content tends to be documentary or photojournalism. And, and we know that's not always the case. But in general, the perception is that documentary imagery is, is the most authentic. But what we did was show us actually was eat, was go even further. We took a documentary approach to the content that was shot. So we had, you know, the women were doing exactly what they wanted to do. They weren't posing in any way. I mean, we did some beauty portraits, which Dove used in their campaign, but in general, they were going about their every day. And then we, you know, we, we insisted that the photographer and the models worked in collaboration on the shoot. They defined themselves in the caption and they defined themselves in the keywords. And we didn't allow any retouching at all, which is actually even further down the kind of ethical standard spectrum than even editorial imagery is. And so, you know, the, the, the plan with that was if we, if we go as far down you know, as far as you can possibly go in terms of authenticity with, with female photographers, female um, models, what does it look like? And, and how does the conversation change around that? And it was, it was so incredibly surprising in terms of the impact that the campaign actually had. It, just on, you know, young women and, and women who, who reached out and said, you know, they'd never seen anything quite like it. And I think it, it changed us as a business in terms of how we think about our own content, about what we, what's possible. What, you know, we haven't really spent a huge amount of, of energy thinking about uh, how content was made, um, who was making it, just whether it was you know, good enough and, and whether our customers wanted it. So I think it, it's, it started a debate which, which has now moved into how are Black people represented and who's shooting Black people? How is disability represented? How is the LGBTQ plus community uh, represented? And it, it's just started the momentum, for, I think, for, for, for so many other um, discussions, which is really exciting. And obviously, it's won 40 plus awards from, you know, from the advertising industry. And I've won a couple of awards. I've, I won um, 
women to watch here and uh, championing change. So, you know, it was it was fantastic in terms of, of, of how it was received. You never quite know when, you know, when, when you've put two years of your life into something, huge amount of energy with like-minded people, you, you worry sometimes that you're in your own little bubble and you're glorifying your own you know your own work but it, it was really moving when we when we launched it at the impact that it had did you think that brands were waiting for something like this i assume they were generally positive yes exactly I, I've, I've not seen any negative reactions to it which was good which you know was a relief i th- i don't think there's any other company other than dove who at that point in time could have done something like that because of the rich history that they had already uh, in terms of pushing authenticity forward and being, you know, very committed to researching girls' self-esteem and thinking, you know, thinking more, I think, long-term in terms of, you know, what the impact of imagery has on, on, on people as they go through their lives. So it was it was a coming together, I think. It was a perfect storm. And, and you know, they brought Girl Gaze in, which was an online Instagram community of, of female photographers. And so, you know, we had this rich source of new and, and I have to say mainly younger photographers who we probably wouldn't have had access to otherwise. So it really, yeah, it was, it was a great coming together of, 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 of three organizations. And, you know, we're into the, we're just starting the third year now. We've just started briefing out the new briefs. And so, you know, the content still is still coming in, it's still being generated. We're focusing in on body types and aging and sports and one other thing which i've completed motherhood <laughs> at the moment so and and all of that content is going into into the show's collection i think that's so important because it's like you said you don't really realize that you're not seeing representation until you see it and i've really found that with the transition into becoming a mum actually i was shown very clearly one version of what that looks like and a very Instagrammable version. And then when I was struggling and finding it hard and, you know, all the things that are perfectly natural, you don't know that they're natural because you just see a certain version. And it's not until you then see the alternative that you go, oh, okay, that's what that actually looks like. So I think it's so, so important to show that. And interestingly, you know, as as I say, I've been around this industry a long time and I, I like to think I'm pretty aware of what's around me but I didn't ever really question who was shooting the content or or what what was being shot other than thinking about whether it was commercial and whether it worked for the purpose it was being shot for and it, it when you when your mind when your mindset starts to change it's quite like you like you say you start you you start identifying it a bit more and i think that's why as a business we've ended up you know looking at other identity groups since then we've just been you know looking at aging and and looking at uh looking at disability and uh and you know the the latinx community in in the us we're doing some work on the asian american community at the moment and you know and 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 you start to realize how much work still needs to be done i think it's it's that classic kind of you know saying you, you if you think you know it all then you probably don't know very much at all yeah. <laughs> it kind of is fascinating you know i was a graphic designer before i, I moved into marketing so imagery has always been very much at the forefront of, of what i've done and often you do pay attention to what the the visual is because that's what you're looking at but i can't think i have ever paid attention to who shot it that's the bit that i think you know, I, I find remarkable 
that it seems so important because part of that's about the authenticity of the image as well. Yes, and I, I think, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, ethical image creation, I don't think there has ever been a discussion until, other than editorial standards, but there has been very little discussion around, you know, who shot the image, whether the image you're looking at is actually what it, what it purports to be. You know, and I'll use, you know, I use the LGBT community again, you know, it, 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 until very recently. And certainly, you know, I've experienced this myself. The, you know, a person could pretend to be in a gay, you know, in a gay relationship or a person could pretend to have a, a disability and be sat in a wheelchair. And that doesn't help those communities you know work themselves you know you have to you have to actually if you're gonna if you're gonna shoot uh, uh, do a shoot around disability you should at least pay models who have disabilities and you know that's hell of a lot to unpick and, and and a lot to think about especially when you're kind of dealing with such huge numbers of content like we are and um, so we've you know uh, over this time we have worked out you know if we put out guidelines to our contributors to help them do a better job uh, in terms of keywording and and how they how they shoot people people who in a in a representative way and then on the other side talk to customers about and, and you know our clients around how to be, make better choices because in the end it's the choice of the photo editor the art director the designer they can choose whatever they want because it's all out there it's 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 laid bare you know but, but you you've almost got to kind of say well if you if you're if you're saying that you're going to be you know talking realistically ethically however you know how whatever language you use around around the brand you're talking about then that goes right down to the content that you're putting into it. It's not just a, you know, you're not just filling a space. That image is serving a purpose and it has an impact. And, and every single, you know, visual piece of content that you put into your work needs to have the same amount of thought to it as if it was going to be, you know, a, a massive poster campaign or, or a press ad, you know, in the old days when, uh, when we were, you know, just, just printing, printing images. It feels like there's a massive element of reassurance here for the brands that are using these images as well, because I know that with the best will in the world, sometimes these things do slip through their nets and they're not thinking about it. And they're just going onto stock libraries and downloading images and putting them out there. And then they're getting it. We've seen brands get into trouble for getting this stuff wrong. And I think there's a real fear at the moment around that in a lot of businesses and a lot of brands in terms of the communications they're producing, which means that they're kind of watering down what they're doing because they're not willing or able to really put themselves out there and take a stand even if they really do care about issues that are important to their audiences so I think the element of you've done the research for them and you've done the legwork is really giving them back that peace of mind that they can use this imagery and be a bit braver yeah exactly and I think I think that's where we realize that we have a purpose you know we have a purpose within within the world to to, to share the the research we, we've always kept the research pretty proprietary historically because it's been a you know competitive advantage for us in terms of how we create content and 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 the methodology that we use to do that but actually sharing it and being more uh, you know open source minded putting stuff out into the public sphere is is probably doing more good I think than than we even realize because it's you know it's it's having that kind of ripple effect that uh, th that's more long long lasting. 
commercially that must have been a big shift though because obviously it's very scary to put your kind of secret source out there in the world and say this is what we're doing and kind of almost hand that to your competitors so it's great to hear that actually that's had a net positive impact for you yeah yeah and it's interesting you know if you go to our, our competitors sites they're very much emulating what we're doing which I, you know that's that's you know it's flattering i guess you know i i think it's it's always like you can't expect people to appreciate what you do or or even treat you with respect and treat you as if uh, from, that you are you coming from a place of knowledge unless you demonstrate that and i think what i think what show us again did for us is that it showed that we put our money where our mouth is it's very easy to turn up at conferences and say if the world needs to change we need more female photographers we need better representation of women which you hear a lot but actually to invest in that and to spend your energy and your time and 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 your you know marketing budget or whatever on that is showing the way it's being it's taking more of a leader in in the kind of thought leadership world and that i think really makes a difference too you know we we offer a lot of grants and bursaries and you know the show us collection we hold back 10 percent of all the revenue of that and we um we invest that back into female photographers who want to do shoots who maybe couldn't afford to do them themselves or want to you know kind of try something different or um or want to shoot someone who has not typically been shot similarly we do you know we do grants bursaries for people from underrepresented identity groups as well and that you know and that enables us to at least use our power and and what limited resources we do have to to try and help others then you never know you know they might be the next superstar of uh, of the future i think show us as well reached out to a lot of people who maybe weren't too aware of getty in a wider context or maybe had thought that getty was one of the big industries that dealt with the big players and it felt like it reached out to smaller more independent more maybe more ethical people who suddenly realized they could afford maybe to to look at the type of offer that you were giving yeah i think so i think it just took us more into 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 kind of you know, mainstream and people who who were not in the business of of licensing content or shooting content or you know using uh, imagery from celebrities and you know all that kind of you know the the much more um, like you say the, the the more produced content and realise that actually we do do some of the other stuff that's good for small businesses and businesses that are trying to evolve their own way of uh, way of thinking. I think the the view of stock imagery has changed a lot though over the last sort of 20 years. Like you say, there was once upon a time maybe a view that stock imagery was a bit, this is an apple, this is, you know, whereas now there's imagery to fit what you're trying to see and it's good and it's strong and it's powerful and it does what you need it to do. Yeah, it's again, you know, I've been I've been around since the days of the analogue dupe file and um and we were so limited in those days in terms of just being able to do a limited number of productions, a limited number of duping, and then a limited amount of distribution. And and so the number was all you know the number was always the thing that we had to be very very cognizant of. And then we went into you know the digital kind of you know the, the world of digital uh, reproduction. And and then it was all about the number. It was the, it was just the amount the amount you could produce, and that's where you get 
300 images of an apple <laughs> or, or, you know, or, or 700 images of a handshake. And, and it was kind of overwhelming. And I think it's just, you know, now we're getting into this space where we, A, the technology's evolved in terms of, you know, how we serve up content, the, you know, our algorithms, how we're, how we're thinking about our customers and how, how we're, you know, localizing, you know, what we share and, and you know, see, uh, what's it called? CIR, you know, the customer interaction ratio is is you know is a it makes it easier so you're, you're not you're not seeing a lot of stuff that's irrelevant to you but I, yeah i think we've just got better at getting closer to to, to the direction that the um that the industry's moving in yeah I, i'm you know those days of uh, of the cheesy handshake or the woman with her salad smiling to herself are, are sadly no more but they're out there and you know and it doesn't take long to delve into the the awful stuff because it's all it's all out there you know it's not archived so you can have a little trip you know trip back to the 1990s should you so wish <laughs> what kind of trends are you noticing at the moment Rebecca because obviously staying on top of those are, are really crucial yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, if I, ha- if I had to summarise really, really briefly, there's, you know, the, the, there's the humanising of technology. I think every technology company that we work with is trying to put a human angle on their tech, whether that's, you know, a phone or something or, or a, you know, an iWatch or, or similar, or, a, you know, how do you humanise AI and, and machine learning? You know, what does the metaverse look like? Those kind of questions are, are you know, and how do you relate that to everyday life and, and uh, human beings? The shifted focus to mental well-being. What does that look like? Uh, you know, what we're looking at is, you know, how do you show that somebody is um, is, is feeling well, you know, has, has kind of, you know, mental wellness and who has has mental wellness and what are you doing to ensure that you, you, you take care of yourself? Um, you know, it's been a big, big topic of conversation in the last two years because of lockdown and obviously the situation that we're all in but and 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 I think the Olympics has really exploded that conversation for for athletes and so it's just it's just out there more and and so that is that is a big shift that we've seen and we we'll continue to see sustainability you know how do you bring sustainable living into everything that you do in terms of shoot you know how we shoot how we might shoot a a dinner party you know how do you shoot a dinner party if everyone is is a vegan hasn't been done before um you know it's kind of thinking about the re-picturing of life when people are much more sustainably focused so you know we do a lot of solar panels and um uh, wind farms and you know electric cars and you know the the shifts that we've seen in in technology and the industries that have expanded because of it but how do you bring it back down to the day-to-day and and again i think that's something that's just going to keep evolving and keep keep growing so we you know we've got rid of all our disposable coffee cups in our shoots we had to get rid of plastic bottles in our shoots and you know if, if I think about shoots where you were doing even five years ago you'd always turn up with a load of you know kind of Starbucks type mugs because if you were showing a meeting or people walking in the street they'd have have one of these but you know the the, the sustainable consumer is turned off by that image and even though it might be something very small in an image it could actually have an impact and so you know we have to think about those very very particular details and then finally you know the authenticity question around you know how how to how to shoot content in the in the most dignified responsible way possible who are you asking to shoot 
and and how are you shooting and how do how do we kind of keep moving that forward you know there there, there are various law changes that have happened there was a, a french law in 2017 there's been a recent norwegian law uh, around um not not changing body shapes there has been you know there's been a lot of talk around retouching face and hair and as well we don't allow any retouching of bodies at all but you know you know will we see more of a shift into the you know complete lack of retouching in anything and you know and how far will, will that spectrum down that spectrum we go and so you know we're kind of right now we're balancing the the need for the very kind of digital world that we're allegedly all going to be living in you know versus the authenticity question and you know will the two diverge or will they converge and and what will the images look like so interesting. And I know in the sustainability space, which is where I do a lot of my work, there's a fascinating conversation about shifting away from the kind of stereotypical imagery of polar bears and ice caps and, you know, the, the stuff that we've all been used to for donkey's years now and actually showing the human impact of climate change um, and how rapid it's happening in order to then create that behaviour change in people. Because obviously if we see other human beings being impacted by this, we're going to be more empathic, we're going to be more motivated to change. But obviously then there's huge ethical considerations to take into account count there because the impacts of this are so drastic and they are affecting people in really terrible ways now so I guess there's a real kind of ethical dilemma balancing there of and almost in the same way of as reporting the news and things you know how do you show what's happening and how do you create these images responsibly but do that in an ethical way yeah I I, I think and and you know there is a balance between the the effects and the impact of climate change and then what most brands are doing is offering solutions mm. um and so you have over here you have the, the the narrative of 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 news like you say or um or more kind of you know editorial uh, narrative and over here you have the brands who are who are using you who believe in it and are using it as a you know com a commercial um initiative and and we you know we cover all bases but i think it, it's, it's been interesting because we've been we've been surveying consumers throughout covid so when covid first hit we found that consumers were less concerned about the environment so the the, the interest in sustainable living dropped in that mm. initial period but interestingly the visualization of the world without humans in it, if you remember, you know, we've got some great shots. We did of sheep in Wales, you know, in the town centre and, um, and and so on and so forth. And 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 so what we then saw was this this increase in interest in, in you know, being sustainable and thinking about the environment while in a kind of, you know, while while we were looking at the world from in, inside our homes. So it, it was almost like the world outside of our homes was something we needed to take care of. But at the same time, being concerned about taking care of ourselves and our families and our friends, etc. So it was, it was interesting the the psychology of, of what happened during or what has happened during the pandemic. And actually, what what has happened since kind of late in 2020 is we've just seen it climb and climb and climb, and and there's been you know much more uh, you know we've seen bigger searches, we've seen you know the search terms have been going up, we've seen there's been more interest in in sustainable living in in you know all sorts of areas of of subject matter that we do. And again, I I really I foresee that just to continue. Uh, this is you know this is the way that we're thinking about the world now, and how we can kind of you know how we can do little things that will hopefully move towards a solution, and therefore 
therefore what brands can do to move towards a solution. And it, you know, and, and it is quite interesting how consumers are looking to brands now, more so than governments actually, to, to be thoughtful about it, about the environment. I think, you know, in previous surveys, prior to pandemic, it was governments and, you know, the, the government should be putting in measures to ensure that we're all sustainable. Now it's like, well, actually, brands are, uh, brands are the problem. So that they should be the ones taking, taking the steps. Thank you. The second part of that interview will be available in our next podcast. So please hit that subscribe button. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. And that's it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast was edited by Stuart Mitchell. The music was by Joe McCafferty. We look forward to seeing you for the next podcast. Podcast.